Well, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you guys this morning. I know a lot of you guys I've known since, some of you since 1989. I've known Dennis since 1989. He didn't look like that back then. Um, and some of you maybe are meeting me for the first time and you're wondering, who's this strange guy standing up there? And I have to confess that whenever I meet somebody for the first time, I am at a disadvantage uh, because of a medical condition that I have that just causes people to have a, it's a challenge, because I, I, I suffer from what's called grumpy resting face, <laughs> right? So I'm not actually mad at you. I'm very happy to be here. It just may not look that way. And my wife is always trying to help me with that, and thankfully that's a good thing, because pastors are supposed to be warm and friendly and engaging, and, and uh, you know, she'll say, smile, and I say, I am smiling. That's, that's the way God made it, and uh, and that's, you know, my smiles preach. preach. <laughs> uh, we'll talk. We'll talk tomorrow. Um, you, you know, I'm not even allowed in certain uh, businesses in the, in the community anymore. I was, I was at, uh, not because they threw me out, because my wife says, just, you know, let me handle that. I went, went to the dry cleaners and uh, they had, you know, they were charging me four fifty for one shirt and two fifty for another and a dollar or whatever the numbers were. And I wasn't angry. I wasn't upset. I, I was just confused. So I'm asking her questions, and thankfully, Davette was with me and kind of tapped me on the arm, and she said, why don't you go wait in the car, and I'll, I'll, I'll take care of this. And, and I guess I was just scaring the poor woman. It works internationally. I was on a missions trip to Mexico just recently, and uh, was in a store with the missionary who was translating for me, because I don't speak Spanish, and uh, he was talking very animatedly with this woman behind the counter and um, back and forth, but she was looking at me the whole time. And it actually, it felt kind of rude. It's like she's just staring at me and she'd say something intensely and then she'd laugh. And, and after a few minutes, we left the store. I said, what was that all about? And he said, she asked me if you were always this mad. <laughs> and I told her, no, you're pretty nice. You just have a mean face. <laughs> so, I... I <laughs> I, I want you to understand, whatever my face is telling to you, uh, my heart is saying, I'm just really glad to be here with you. I pray for you guys all the time. I'm excited to be a part of what God's doing at Redemption Hill Church, all three of our locations. And whenever I have a chance to be with you, with old friends, that's wonderful. To make new friends, that's great. So thank you. Thanks for letting me be here. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you take that and open it to 1 Peter chapter 4, please? We're continuing our series through 1 Peter. 1 Peter 4. We're going to do verses 12 through 19 this morning. And if you'd pray with me, that'd be great. Lord Jesus, would you please speak to us right now? through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds. Some of us need to be challenged. Some of us need to be encouraged. Some of us maybe need to know Jesus for the first time. Father, thank you that we can come in prayer and know that you hear our prayer. And so we offer it to you and offer ourselves to you and ask that you would do something for the sake of your name and for the good of your people through these few minutes that we spend in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was um, reading as I was studying this passage, and, and one of the uh, scholars had a sentence 
Actually, it's kind of a thought that really struck me. I'd like to share it with you and ask you in your own heart and mind to fill in the rest of the thought. Complete the thought. Don't, don't say it out loud. Just between you and God and be honest, what does the rest of this thought unfold like in your own heart and mind? Here's the, here's, the, here's the beginning of the thought. We seem to assume that God knows what he is doing when we are happy and well. How does that finish? We seem to assume that God knows what he's doing when we're happy and well. I'd like to imagine, if you will, being in the doctor's office with your spouse. This is one of many, many doctor's appointments. First general practitioner, then specialist after specialist, because weird things have been happening in your body. And finally, as you're waiting for the doctor to come back, you know, they have the consult and then they leave. Who knows what they, they go to Starbucks. I'm not sure what they do. But I suspect in complicated scenarios, they're consulting manuals and talking perhaps even with other people. And the doctor comes back into the examining room. And just in a moment, you can tell the news is not particularly good. And he says, um, you have multiple systems atrophy. Don't Google it. It's all bad. You will die in the next three to nine years. But what this disease does is it is your brain is literally trying to shut down every major system in your body. And it will succeed at doing that one at a time, and it's going to get really hard really fast. We seem to assume that God knows what he is doing when we are happy and well. What about then? That's the news that a pastor named Greg Rollinger got in 2011. He was 42 years old. Four kids at that time, ages 10 down to 5. His ministry was just booming. In 2001, he started a church in his living room in Arizona. Today, there's 4,000 people that are part of that church. Just explosive impact. Everything's going as you would expect. And then the doctor walks in, says, it's going south. You're losing control of everything. It's going to get really ugly. It's going to get really hard. How do we respond to that? Greg and his wife, Lori, obviously were devastated, and they prayed a great deal. But as they were processing, it didn't take too long before Greg came to Lori, and he said, I think God has allowed this as a gift. And she said, that's exactly what I was thinking. As we come to this passage in 1 Peter, we come to a section where it's kind of bringing a climax to this whole concept of living for Jesus in the face of suffering. 
Now, the main focus has been that these people have had specific human antagonists mistreating them and abusing them because of their faith in Christ. But in this closing section, I think Peter actually even expands it out when he talks about the sufferings of Christ. I think he's talking about all the suffering that comes to any follower of Jesus as a result of following Jesus, whether we can identify a human agent or not. Next week, we're going to see that pushback in our lives doesn't just come from people with faces like yours and mine, angry though it may look. Satan is at work in the world. Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, we wrestle against principalities and powers and the rulers. There's more going on than just what's meeting the eye in my human encounters. And so I think as he's getting near the end of the book, he's, he's kind of broadening his perspective and he's telling us, listen, I want you to be able to stand when things are hard, when you're suffering, when it hurts, when you're struggling, and that struggle comes from following Jesus. In their particular case, it's human antagonists, but in your case, it may be fill in the blank. Any suffering or struggle or hardship that comes as you are following Jesus, because you are following Jesus, however small or great, I think what he says here is fruitful for that. And this is Peter saying, whatever happens, don't allow yourself to be detracted from your calling by hardship. Because hardship is actually part and parcel of your calling. If you want to follow along, let's just read that section together. And then I'll give you a a little outline that will hold it together as we talk. Because he says a whole lot of things, and I'm going to try to try to gather them together in a couple of key thoughts that I think will make easier sense out of everything that he's saying and and, and do justice, I hope, to all of those things. Um, But if you just follow along, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when he is revealed. I'm sorry, when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, uh, let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think Peter tells us a lot of important things, but I think they really can be captured under two key ideas. I may suffer for God's will. I may suffer for God's will. And if that's true, I must suffer for God well. I must suffer for God well. In any given moment, suffering may or may not be a part of my life. For anyone who follows Jesus over time, it will crop up. 
So when I say I may suffer, that just means this particular moment I may be suffering because the reality is it's a certainty. At some point or another, my following of Jesus is going to complicate my life in a painful way. Now, the good news is, if you can call it that, my life would be complicated in a painful way no matter what I was doing. And at least if I'm following Jesus, that painful complication is purposeful and it's graced. But... I need to come to grips with the fact I may suffer for God's will, and if that's the case, then I must suffer for God's will. That, I think, captures what Peter is saying, and it's braided in and out through these verses. And I think that first point, let me give you three sub-points for those of you that like to take notes to hang it off of. I, I may suffer for God's will. It's part of the deal, right? That's found in verse 12, verse 13, and verse 19. It's part of the deal. It grows me, because it's God's will, it grows me, verse 12 and verse 14 show us that. And then it points to hope, that's verses 17 and 18, right? I may suffer for God's will as part of the deal, it grows me, and it points to hope. Okay, the second thing that he tells us, I must suffer for God well, that shows up in verse 13, where we're told to rejoice. In verse 16, and verse 15 and 16, we're told not to be ashamed and where we're told to glorify God. And then in verse 19, where we're challenged not to stop doing what we're doing because it hurts. Okay, so let's just dive in for a minute. I I need to suffer, I I need to know that I, I may suffer for God's will. It says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't be surprised. As if it were strange. When hard things come, It's amazing how quick it is for me to say, God, what's going on? How come this is happening? When he's already said, you're following a crucified Messiah, right? Didn't he say, take up your cross and follow me? Didn't he say, any who would follow me would suffer persecution? Now, I told you. I'll redeem it all, I'll go with you through it all, but I, it, it, there's no surprise, it's, it's part of the deal. Verse 19 says, look, you can suffer, it, it's according to God's will, this happens sometimes. How many of us um, have never really come to grips with this? What, what did you sign up for when you signed up to follow Jesus? What does that mean? Anyway, I think there's a lot of things we are expecting. A lot of things God promises. He promised blessing. He promises salvation. He promises transformation. He promises his spirit. He promises a future. He promises meaning and significance. Now he promises freedom from guilt when we walk in the spirit. He promises all kinds of things that are wonderful, but he also says part and parcel of that is it's going to hurt at times. And this is a particularly important message for us to wrestle with because in, by God's grace, in our day and age, in our culture, like no one else in history, the, the sharp edges of this have been blunted in our experience. And it's easy for us to, to not notice, oh yeah, this is because I'm following Jesus, that this is going hard or difficult, so that when something breaks through that we can't ignore, it, it just blows us away takes us completely by surprise. How could this be? And Peter's saying, don't be surprised. It's part of the deal. You may suffer for God's will. 
That may happen. Um, a, a book that I read recently that was deeply impacting, and I know some of you have looked at it too, is a book called uh, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. Now, he's, that's not his real name. That's a pseudonym he's using to protect the people he's writing about. He was a missionary, went through this huge personal crisis and decided to really devote his study to the persecuted church around the world. And he started with those Iron Curtain countries that have, where, the, where the Iron Curtain's fallen and everything's changed. He starts interviewing some of the old timers that experienced the things that happened then. And he was just blown away by their stories and what happened and how they lived and, and, and served Jesus in the midst of the pain. And in in Russia, after he had talked to a whole bunch of people, he was in a meeting the last moments of his visit, and he said, you guys need to write some of this stuff down. Why haven't you written this down? And and they said, why would we write it down? Well, people need to hear this story. Why do they need to hear our story? Everyone's story is the same. Everyone... No, no, you don't understand. People need to hear this. It's so encouraging. And one of the old pastors took him over to the window, and he, he pointed him out the window, put his hands on his shoulders. He stood behind him. He said, Nick, you have boys, right? Yeah. Do you, do you ever take them to your window? And this window is facing east. Do you ever take them to your window and just say, okay, boys, just watch. Just watch. Look, 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 look. There it is. The sun, the sun has come up. No. Why not? Well, that'd be stupid. The sun always comes up. There's nothing special about that. And he said to him, Nick, followers of Jesus always suffer. There's nothing special about that. Didn't fully sink in, so the next country he's working in is Ukraine. At the very end, basically, he says the same thing. You guys, need to, you guys need to write this down. People need to hear your story. And one of the old pastors there, a little less pastoral, a little more prophetic, pulled him aside and he said, why would anyone need to read our story? It's the same as every... It's written down here. When did you stop reading your Bible? Because we live in such a comfortable society. We have to be particularly attentive, I think, here, because that comfort may not always be there, first off. Secondly, I think that comfort sometimes lulls us into an easy capitulation when tough things come, because we've never really prepared ourselves. Peter is speaking to people, he says, they're in the midst of struggling, and it's going to get a lot worse, and he's saying, don't be surprised. It's not strange. Sometimes it's God's will. It's part of the deal. And because it's God's will, there's some good things that come. He wants him to understand that. In verse 12, he talks about the fiery trial. The fiery trial. And he's picking up language that's in the Old Testament. Psalm 66.10, for instance, talks about being refined and tested by fire, the people of God. And here's the good news. When things are happening, in their case, they're actually literally being persecuted by unbelievers because of their faith. He's saying God's in that too. Yes, there's that side of the equation, but don't you see the other side of the equation? Every trial that you have also has has a testing from God that's working good in you, that is refining you. So it's building your character. It's growing your faith. It's purifying you. No, it's not necessarily pleasant, but the results are incredibly wonderful. So it's a 
it's a testing that has come from God. In fact, um, verse 14 adds to that idea. It says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, and, and this is, sounds an awful lot like Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, how does that work? Well, here's what he's saying. Those who are by faith in the power of the Spirit saying, I'm in with you, Lord, even if it's hard, if you'll help me, I'll stand. They've already said, last week we looked, they already said, you know, I'm choosing you over sin. Saying that that actually authenticates, that's an evidence that God is at work in you and the Spirit rests upon you and you're sharing in all that Christ offers. So when you're suffering, when you're struggling for your faith, there's this side not to forget that God's shaping your character. And it also is a sign that God's at work in you. How cool is that? The Holy Spirit is resting upon you. He's the one that's enabling you. He's the one that's helping you. He's the one that's strengthening you. You are part of God's special people. It's not like he's ignoring you or he's distant or displeased. He's right there with you. And the very suffering and struggle you're experiencing may be a pointer to that. And it's the kind of thing that grows us. It grows me. In uh, verses 17 and 18, he develops this God's will theme a little bit further. And he says, your suffering points to hope. Now, let me unpack that for you, because it sure doesn't sound like it at first, but when you understand what he's doing, that's exactly what he's saying. Look at verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner, right? If if our journey is hard, what's it going to be like for those who reject Christ, who reject the good news that Jesus is the Savior and he's restoring everything and we can once again live rightly under God's rule? But he's quoting a whole stream from the Old Testament that shows up all kinds of places. Ezekiel 9, for instance, where Ezekiel has a vision of the presence of God leaving the temple, the glory of God leaving the temple, and there's a judgment that's coming, and it's starting at the, literally the house of God with the elders. Or in Malachi, the end of chapter 2 and into the first part of chapter 3, it picks up that same idea that God is going to do his refining work and his judgment, starting with his own people and then out to those who are judged. When it says... Judgment here, judgment in verse 17 to begin at the household of God, don't read that as condemnation. It is assessment. It is a decision that God is making based on our relationship. And that judgment, that assessment can result in um, approval. It can result in discipline and correction. Or for those that aren't, children of God by faith in Christ, condemnation. But what the Old Testament is picturing is that God is going to fix it all. He's going to wrap it all up. He's going to fix all the wrongs, change the world, make it right again. But in order to do that, he has to make us right or destroy us. And so he starts by making a people for himself and purifying those people and then following on the heels of that is going to be the judgment of all those who have rejected. 
And he's saying, you're experiencing the first part of that. Suffering in the life of a Christian for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of living for Jesus, is actually a pointer to the fact that God's already begun to fix everything. I was, um, well, there was a, 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 an encounter that I happened to be privy to that was pretty striking to me. It was a family that had a lot of hard things come up. Family that was really seeking to follow God and trust Him, and everything I see says they are. But I was there in a moment where somebody had bad news to share to one of the women in the family that hadn't heard it. And um, it was just one more in a long line of things, terrible things that had happened. It hadn't directly impacted the family that I was with, but it it surrounded them. Everyone around them, they could see pain and suffering and struggle often brought by their own sin or by the sin of others. And this latest pronouncement was just something dreadful that somebody had done that was devastating, had ruined so much because of sin. And the moment that was shared, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back. And this this woman just dissolved into the arms of the guy who was telling her the story and just started sobbing with these words, I wish Jesus would come back now. Peter says, that's what's going on when I'm suffering. For the sake of my relationship with God, it's part of that ultimate reality Jesus has already begun, and he is coming back. And he says, be encouraged. God is at work in his people, doing his purifying work that makes way for the ultimate correction. Peter wants us to understand God is, um, sometimes we suffer for God's will. And he doesn't want us to back down. Remember, by the way, who Peter is. This is Peter of the twice crowing cock that says that. When, when somebody challenges you, when it gets hard, whatever you do, don't deny Christ. I did. I don't want you to follow that. And he wants us to understand. You know, it, the hard things are part of the package. But God's got a purpose in it that will grow you, and it's all part of him fixing everything. So even be encouraged through the tears. Now the second theme in this passage is that I may suffer for God's will. I must suffer for God well, if that's the case. Um, Look in verse 13. After he says, don't be surprised, don't think it's strange, but rejoice. I should rejoice when suffering comes. Really? Yeah, really. Not because I like pain but because of all these other things he's telling me. In fact, he makes a really strong point. There's a soft way of saying but, and there's a hard way of saying but, and this is the hard way. This is, you know, don't be surprised, but rather rejoice. Celebrate God's work. And the second part of the verse anchors us in something that adds even more hope to that. Because it says... um, that you may also rejoice and be glad. You see that? Rejoice and be glad. He's intensifying it. 
when his glory is revealed. Right now, he says, your suffering is part of being a follower of Jesus. You are suffering as a Christian. Remember, you follow a crucified Messiah. You're looking like your master. What's so bad about that? Hard, yeah. But isn't that what we want, to be like Jesus? You're being like Jesus, so that's good. And imagine what it's going to be in the end. Rejoice and be glad. Paul uses a couple of phrases that have just riveted me when things are hard that I think mesh really well with what Peter's saying here. In fact, he uses almost the same phrases twice. Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I don't consider that the sufferings of this present time, the momentary light affliction, he calls it, is worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Now, he's not somebody who's gotten off scot-free. Read uh, Read Corinthians. He says, I've been shipwrecked and beaten and snake bit and stoned and left for dead and blah, blah. I mean, he goes on and on and on. His story is way more dramatic than any of ours. And he's only halfway through. He's got like another 10 or more years after he writes Corinthians. That's his halfway point, And it's already that bad. And that's when he's saying, but it doesn't matter. All of that stuff, yeah, hurts, but... Look at what God's doing in me and for me and through me. I am so excited that the glory that will be revealed when Jesus comes. Peter's encouraging these people saying, you know, you will suffer, so suffer well. Rejoice that you're following Jesus. There's no pass through life where it's not hard. Nobody gets through without tears. Your tears match Christ's. And they bring such great joy in the end. Rejoice. Suffer well. Second thing he shows us here is that as we're, as we're going through a hard thing, our, our heart should be glorified God. That shows up a couple of different places. First, verse 15, he says, don't you be a shame. And verse 16, don't you be ashamed. Right? Don't suffer because, as Dennis said, and I've quoted you, because I love it. Don't suffer for being insufferable, right? And he starts, and he starts kind of in a reverse order, maybe to kind of lull them to sleep and then punch them in the gut. I'm not sure. Don't suffer as a murderer. Oh, okay, I got that one. Or a thief. Oh, okay, I, I think I got that one. Or an evildoer. Well, uh, hopefully I've got that one. Or a meddler. Oh. Oh. A lot of us are meddlers. All of us probably meddle at some time or other. And he's saying, look, you know, you get pushback for all kinds of things. And that's on you. Let your suffering be on Jesus. Let it be because you're following Jesus. So don't be ashamed to the name of Christ. Instead, bring glory to the name of Christ. Don't be ashamed that you're suffering because you're suffering to glorify God. So glorify God in that name. Glorify God as a Christian. Let it be obvious that your response to what's going on is the Christian response because you represent Jesus. Little tiny window in my own life. Just recently I was in, um, I took a trip to Africa for a missions trip and um, the mission stuff was awesome. The journey was horrible. (laughs) Some of you may have heard, because Davette was um, sharing prayer requests. So we flew from here. It was a group. We were meeting up in Newark from all over the country and then flying to Africa. So I flew from LAX to Newark 
and then I was going to fly to Zurich, then to Nairobi. So we get on a red eye in Newark to fly to Zurich, and we get halfway across the Pacific Ocean. I know it was halfway because it was about a seven-hour flight, and we were over three hours into it. Okay? You know, there was no, no mile sign in the middle of the air, but I know. We were halfway there. And the captain comes on. He says, ladies and gentlemen, we have a mechanical difficulty. We're going back to Newark. And I'm thinking, we're halfway there. Why don't we go to Zurich? Right? I later learned it was hydraulic, right? So what? Is it landing gear? We can crash land in Switzerland as easily in, as we can in New Jersey. I trust the Swiss. What, is it the avionics? We're gonna have, it's going to be a battle. Well, we're going to battle either way. Let's, go to, let's keep going. They turn us around and land us in Newark in the middle of the night. And ah. Then they say, oh, you're going to miss your connection, but we've got something fixed, and we'll have to fix the rest of it while you're in the air. Hurry, hurry, hurry. We've got this new flight for you. So they hurry us onto a flight, and they say, what's going to happen is you're going to go from here to Zurich, and then we're going to fly you to Amsterdam, which is north, by the way, and Nairobi is south. We're going to fly you to Amsterdam where you can connect with a different flight on a different airline, and they'll take you to Nairobi. And we get to Zurich, and that's fine, and we get to Amsterdam, and we show up at the gate, and they're like, what are you people doing here? Well, we're booked. We know that. So is everyone else. We are so overbooked, there's not one chance you're getting on this plane. Like, well, now I'm an extra thousand miles away from my destination, and they blew it. We got to stay overnight. Now we're orphaned because we're no longer with the airline we flew with. And so the airline we're with now, they're not going to pay for our... Yes, just like, oh, please. So next morning we get on the plane and everything's messed up. And finally we get to Nairobi and we're there late at night, a whole day late. I was just under 60 hours from my house to the hotel in Africa. I was like, oh, please, just kill me. And we get there, and we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting by the um, carousel, and guess what never got on the flight? All of our bags were back in Newark. They didn't make it to Zurich or Amsterdam. They're in Newark, right? And so we spend the whole week in, in, in Nairobi, and it's like, I have to have some more clothes. Well, there's entire regions of the world where buying clothes for me is a little bit challenging. There's entire races of people that are half my size. And the only things I could find was this shirt that made me feel like I was this tourist on safari. In fact, it wasn't even subtle. It said safari brand right on the pocket. I'm like, oh, great. Here I am, the great missionary from the West. Aha. Oh, I felt like an idiot. And the whole time we're interacting with airlines and hotels and and you know what was really frustrating about that? Not only was that frustrating, but we're a whole group of pastors. So we have to be really nice. <laughs> in fact, the guy that was in charge, the mission agency that took us, he's wearing a shirt with their logo on it. He's like, man, I wish I had a different shirt right now. Of course, our shirts are all in the luggage, but that's beside the point. It really was not that hard, but in the moment it felt pretty irritating, frustrating, wearisome. By God's grace, I think we all responded appropriately enough. And I think, in part, we were very keyed into the fact that we represent Jesus. But I think that's Peter's point all the time, isn't it? He says, 
suffer as a Christian and glorify God. You represent Jesus, and Jesus is not a jerk. You represent Jesus, and Jesus is not a coward. You represent Jesus, and Jesus is not a whiner. Now, he's not a pushover who says everything's okay no matter what. He stands for truth and works for right. But he stands and works for truth and right, rightly. And Peter's talking to people who are under the gun, and he says, when you're under the gun, remember, you're also under the microscope. When you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Glorify God. Let him see God. Verse 19. It says, don't stop doing good. That's part of that same package. You glorify God. Don't, don't let the hardship change you or cause you to back down. Because God's at work, and letting God work in you and letting God work through you can hurt. I have a, a newer hero to my collection, and he's a broadcaster from the earliest days of radio named Harold Vidian. And Harold worked for CBS in the tumultuous years immediately prior to World War II, and there was a meeting of the world powers in London that was going to be broadcast on CBS, and King George was going to address, and this is a very important talk, it's a very critical time, very important people were at the conference, and the whole world is listening in, and CBS is going to broadcast it the first time the world is going to hear George's voice. I mean, it's an amazing moment. And Harold is just a sound engineer whose job it is to facilitate the king's message getting out, and he's there in the sound booth, and moments before they go on the air, somebody trips over the wire and snaps it in half. And they have no time to do anything. And mild-mannered Harold Vidian, ever the hero, picks up both ends of the wire, puts it together, and makes the connection. For 20 minutes, all of that current is running through his body. But the king's message got out. For 20 minutes, he's in pain. And when he's done, he's burned. But the king's message got out. When you and I sign up to follow Jesus, it's not just about us. It's really about the king and what he's doing. And that involves all of us and a whole lot more. And one of the things that's part of that is that we would just partner with what he's doing. It's the king's message that needs to get out, and sometimes the current of that runs through my life, and sometimes that current hurts. And he says, don't stop doing good. Don't stop behaving the way you're behaving. Don't compromise your character. Don't, don't back down from your mission. Don't miss your calling just because it's hard. Glorify God in, in it. And verse 19 also has the key. Here's the challenge. This is such a high calling, and it's so hard. 
And if it weren't for verse 19, none of us would have a chance. But look at what he says. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. I cannot do what I was just called to do, and neither can you. I have to be carried. I have to be held. I have to be supported. But I serve a faithful creator who will do just that. Started by telling you about Greg Rollinger. December 12, 2015, just a few weeks ago, his wife posted this on her Facebook page. Last night, Greg went home to be with the Lord. God embraced his servant in the most peaceful of ways possible, for which I can't thank him enough. Greg fought the good fight, he finished his course, and he certainly kept the faith. In the last weeks, I've read to Greg so many times, Revelation 21 and 22, trying to wrap my head around what heaven will be like. While I have grief beyond description, I also have joy beyond description. I lost the love of my life, but I would never want him back. He is in the place I yearn to go, and I can't wait to see him again one day. God didn't answer my prayers the way I wanted. And while that made me sad, angry, and desperate, I can say without hesitation that God was faithful through it all and can be trusted with the most valuable things in your life. He is more than good, more than fair, more than loving, more than faithful. So I'm praising his name today as I wake for my first morning without my mate and agree with John in Revelation 22 when he says, Come, Lord Jesus. That Facebook page is titled, There's Value to the Struggle, because that was their theme. It would take him, Greg, an hour to get out of bed every morning, and people tried to help me. He said, don't help me. There's value to the struggle. There's value to the struggle. I will not be ready to stand on my own if I don't stand on my own. And as hard as this is to watch me and as hard as this is to do, let me do it. And he would literally rock back and forth, spend a full hour getting to where he could sit up and then rock back and forth until finally his momentum carried him to his feet. And that's how his day would start. But he said, there's value to the struggle. God is preparing me for the rest of the day and for the rest of what he has. And there's a whole lot more to his story that's just filled with the grace and mercy of God in the midst of incredible pain. And I think Greg... I know Greg would say this because he's in the presence of Jesus and he's now been perfected. He gets it as much as any of us ever will. Peter's right. I may suffer for the will of God. When that happens, I must suffer well for God. And in order for that to happen, I have to lean into God. He's the only one that can help me. And I need him to hold me 